Hello and welcome to the first FT Advisor podcast of 2022 and what a year it was last year when we spent most of the first half of the year in lockdown of some sort and eventually we ended up getting some form of freedom but then as the Omicron variant spread through the UK there were concerns about whether Christmas would happen at all again. So does 2022 have anything better in store for us? Well this is what we're here to discuss with our four FT Advisor reporters. Here with me are Amy Austin, Ruby Hinchliffe, Sally Hickey, and Sonia Arch. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Great. So, Sally, we'll start with you, if I may. Uh, ESG has uh, been a big theme over the past year. Uh, what are you, the issues that you see developing uh, over this year? Sure. So, a lot of industry experts have highlighted the difficulties in judging uh, what environmental, social, governance, sustainable, responsible investing uh, actually means. Um, and so, I think in 2021, it was it was quite clear that uh, these are not easily defined terms. And in the absence of any kind of regulation or global definitions, um, it's really critical for both investors and advisors to clarify to each other what they mean. And and when I say this, I mean, you know, if an investor says to their advisor, I'd like to invest sustainably, the advisor, you know, it's it's important that they have that conversation with their client to say, what exactly do you mean? Do you have any red lines? Um, Is there anything you don't want to invest in? because they're such the terms uh, are such umbrella terms that that what could happen in five years is an advisor could could create a portfolio for an investor that's nothing like what they expected because there's so much within those three terms. So um, I think another issue that will be interesting to watch uh, in 2022 is that the data available both to investors and advisors is not consistent or very concise. Um, so different regulators across the world uh, require different disclosures. Some don't at all. In the UK, we don't have any regulation at the moment. Um, there are a number of um ratings agencies who will rate individual funds um, but these um, are at the moment a lot of people are saying you should really be seeing this as an opinion not as like a credit rating because each different rating agency will use different data they'll use kind of uh, the goalposts will be different so they're not really comparable um, and most most uh, fund managers and asset managers will have their own ESG frameworks. And again, these can be very vague. They can be very specific. Um, and again, it's very difficult for advisors to get their heads around all of these. So I think a lot more kind of specification will be happening this year. And that will be um, really inter- interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. And how has uh, ESG regulation been developing? So, as I said, there's nothing at the moment uh, in the UK. Um, the U- the EU uh, initiated their taxonomy. I think it came into force last summer. Um, and that was one of the first ones um, to come into force. And the UK was meant to implement it. But after Brexit, they decided to go their own way. The EU regulations, they've been received with, I think, mixed reviews. Um, it, it does seem that the regulators didn't engage fully with the asset management industry or, or, or as much as the asset management industry would have liked before introducing them. But then on the other hand, you know, this whole space is moving so quickly. I think it's pretty hard for the regulator to keep up. Um, the UK authorities did convene a task force in early 2021 on sustainable taxonomy. Um, so hopefully guidelines will be imminent. I think something that will be quite interesting is how much they align to the EU's taxonomy 
sort of fund managers and asset managers will have funds both um, domiciled in, in the UK and in the EU. So far, a lot of them are aligning their UK funds with the EU taxonomy just because it's easier to do that. So I think the divergence between the two is going to be um, something that, that will be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So how should investors and indeed their advisors ensure they are investing responsibly? So I think, first of all, it, as I said, it comes down to what the the investor means by investing responsibly. And that's for them to take the time to work out what their priorities are. And that's not just in what they invest in. I think it's their priorities on, on you know, what they need their money to do. So if they need big returns, perhaps, you know, a really, really specific, environmentally friendly portfolio is not for them. Um, there's also been an interesting argument brewing over the best way to invest uh, with an impact. Um, and one side of this debate is exclusion. So investors should hold no stocks or shares that are, you know, tobacco companies, uh, arms companies, alcohol co- companies, all of this Um But the other side of this argument is that, you know, if you don't hold those shares, then someone else will, and they might not be as engaged in ESG as you are. So then you've kind of, you've lost your opportunity to put a bit of pressure onto that company to try and influence it uh, to become more aligned with your goals. And there are instances in 2021 of, of shareholder activism, you know, changing things in huge multinational companies. So that definitely can be the case. Mm. Um, I think something else to watch out for this year is the rise of passive uh, ESG investing. Uh, At the moment, there's very, very little. There are very few trackers, if any, um, for ESG uh, portfolios to invest in. And the consensus is that the only way to get a suitable return or to get any kind of decent exposure to ESG is through active investing. Um, Vanguard recently, at the end of last year, launched um, some active sustainable funds, and obviously they're known as a passive uh, passive manager. So I think it would, be, it would be fascinating to watch, you know, who gets there first, who can work out how to invest passively in ESG, because that will just open it up to a huge number um, of potential investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of uh, regulation, uh, we'll move uh, to Sonia, our um, uh, advice industry and regulation reporter. But a brief, um, briefly before we do that, um, Sonia, uh, advisor M&A has been a big theme of 2021, uh, much like it was a big theme of 2020. Uh, what can we expect uh, going into this year? So, yeah, in 2020, we uh, saw some firms kind of held back a little when the crisis um, hit. And I and I think many didn't kind of expect the impact it would have. um, And a lot of firms would have held back because of it. Despite that, though, there was still uh, a lot of activity in the space um, in general. And last year, like many, I think we thought coronavirus would have kind of been left behind. But but here it is again joining us in 2022 so it's it's clearly not something going away anytime soon and I think that didn't kind of stop many from uh, operating with a with a business as usual approach when it came to M&A uh, purely because there was still a, a lot of activity um, the year of, of 2021 saw uh, a flurry of activity across the industry but I think one area in particular that did stand out across the year was mergers and acquisitions there was a lot of activity in this space um the likes of fairstone and independent wealth planners continued their their acquisition sprees across the year and iwp actually stood out um as it actually describes itself as a group of local independent advice firms rather than kind of the traditional consolidator as we all know and 
IWP actually completed 14 deals in 2021 and added around 2 billion um, assets under management. So so you can kind of see as an example of how many uh, deals like that would have gone through. And I think we'll see a lot of them in the near future as well. Um, I think separately since around 2019, so pre-COVID, and as as I think we'll all be kind of referring to pre-COVID and post-COVID times now, um, there was a, a kind of a lot of private equity investment um, firms coming into the market and and seeing kind of the advice market as a viable business model. So we I think we'll see more of of those uh, PE firms coming into the space too. Mm, and um, going back to regulation, what has been uh, the FTA's area focus uh, over the past year and what's it likely to be focusing on this year? Yeah, so um, I think the FCA has kind of done a lot in the past uh, year and, and kind of across 2021, we saw them launch a lot of different uh, consultation papers and, and kind of other things in that space. Um, so one in particular, which I guess will will stand out, is the new consumer duty, which it first announced in May last year. Um, and it was kind of designed to create a, a higher level of consumer protection in um, the financial services space in general. So I think currently firms are kind of bound by these FCA rules and principles to treat customers fairly, which um, includes kind of an offering uh, products and services at fair prices. Um, and it's kind of all around, you know, naturally avoiding consumer harm. Uh, but I think in May, the, the FCA had said that it was um, going to kind of expand this a little bit um, and it had seen evidence of practices which caused consumer harm um, including firms providing information which was misleading or or difficult for consumers to understand so actually just before I guess the the Christmas period um, and before the end of the year the FCA uh, kind of said it was going to press ahead with the proposed duty um, with an implementation implementation date of April 30th 2023 so I think across 2022 we will be seeing a lot more around the consumer duty and what some of the proposals could mean um, I guess kind of looking at those in particular there were some uh, some of the kind of key principles that they outlined in the duty was to require firms to ask themselves what outcomes consumers should be able to expect from their products and services and included you know the consumer principle which will reflect the overall standards of, of behavior that the FCA expects from firms cross-cutting rules um, which will require three key behaviors from firms taking all reasonable steps to kind of avoid harm for consumers and it will kind of be underpinned by um, other kind of rules and guidance that will be detailed expectations from firms and and kind of what we can expect from them uh, in terms of communication or products or customer service even. Mm-hmm. Any other areas we can expect uh, the FCA to focus on? Um, so yeah I think last year uh, since kind of around well 2019 so since around the time that the chief executive um, Nicol Rathi kind of took over he pledged to create this kind of regulator that looks and feels different um, and, and part of this will be done through the FCA's uh, transformation program so I think there'll be a lot around uh, what their plans are in with the transformation program what's kind of going on and where they're at 
Um, but alongside that, there was also the the first business plan under Rappi's reign, I guess, um, uh, earlier earlier last year and in the summer. And within that, the the regulator kind of pledged to to be like more forward looking, proactive, um, and said it would kind of make make relevant changes. Um, among these things, there was kind of a few areas of focus. So. One in particular that the FCA um, said it would focus on was to streamline decision making on its authorization applications and and specific supervisory and enforcement decisions. So it said it kind of the point of this is to prevent and and stop harm faster. And and one way to do this was making changes to areas within its control, um, including taking greater risks when making decisions. Another area was kind of the um, UK authorizations gateway. So there are currently 1,435 firms um, currently accessing UK markets via the temporary permissions regime. And Rathi kind of said, I think, that he wants to take a tougher approach, um, which will kind of involve, I guess, more checks um, and, and means that those firms kind of won't automatically make it through. So taking this kind of faster enforcement action is is um, one of the areas that I guess they'll be looking at. Funnily enough, I think the one that probably stands out to me a little bit more just for the for the humor um is the uh fact that the fca is now on tiktok and other social media platforms and actually towards the the end of last year they um also released a jingle uh, a festive jingle on loan fraud so i think if we see more of that in 2022 as their approach of um having kind of more communication with consumers which was part of their business plan that would be uh one to watch and also it would be interesting to see kind of what their plans are to go from there and how they'll be um, approaching their communication with consumers whether it's effective or not. Nothing nothing like a, a government body getting into the meme game and are there any <laughs> uh, briefly are there any particular items on the industry's uh, regulatory wish list? Yeah so I think um, one area that I haven't I haven't touched on yet and and it's not because I've forgotten about it but probably because you saved the best for last is um the the mention of the infamous word levy and also of course the the professional indemnity insurance market so the the levies obviously are, are one of the areas that advisors will constantly be talking about and it's and it's definitely on the industry wish list to to bring down um so the FCS actually forecasted a levy of 900 million for 2022-2023 um, and advisors will yet again con con contribute the maximum of um, 240 million. So the, this was kind of largely down to the fact that uh, the number of self-invested uh, personal pension operator failures that were expected last year did not happen and are now predicted for this year. So while the levy was cut for uh, the, the for last year to 717 million, which was lower than the forecasted amount, it did mean an increase for this year. So that's definitely, uh, I think, an area that the advisors will be kind of looking to looking at and and focusing on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that seems a uh, uh, an opportune moment to turn to uh, Amy, who uh, is our pension supporter. Um, Amy, defined benefit transfers is an area. Uh, full of issues which will not disappear uh, this year, unfortunately, and it seems likely we'll see the FCA continue its crackdown into poor advice. Um, uh, but 
just before uh, Christmas, we had rules come into force which removed the statutory right to transfer. Trustees are now expected to block transfers if certain red flags are present, uh, such as individuals being pressured uh, into transfer. Um, and then there's a, also rules around amber flags if they suspect a potential uh, scam. Uh, what, what can we expect to happen in this area uh, this year? Well, I think, you know, this is still quite uh iffy area for people because they're not we're not quite sure what's going to happen because you know they only came into force a couple months ago and actually what happened is there wasn't any um there wasn't much notice so they kind of was like here you go here are the rules now they come into force you've got a couple of weeks to sort it out um basically because they didn't want people to kind of rush into it um you know and just be like quick let's transfer out um then one of the big concerns is that the money helper which is you know the money and pension service uh, will be overrun with guidance requests um, if trustees do not actually apply common sense when interpreting the amber rules and just go ahead and flag a lot of transfers and I mean you can understand why trustees would be doing this I feel like if I was a trustee um, I might raise an amber flag on most transfers just to cover my back and make sure I'm not pushing through transfers that could have you know a dodgy element to them or that you know in the end someone might be scammed um but for example um one of the things that could raise an amber flag is that a scheme may allow you know overseas investments um which means a person's going to have to take guidance before they're allowed to transfer but you know there's quite a lot of overseas investments that happen in pensions um like for the scene scheme um, so, you know, people should be carrying out, you know, existing due diligence processes on these type of transfers anyway. Uh, but it's a concern that, you know, it's going to just an amber flag is going to be raised. Like, let's push it through. So if every single pension transfer to a scheme facilitating overseas investments resulted in scam guidance, that kind of means that every kind of DC transfer may be delayed which, you know, which is not what the policy intended to do. The policy in, uh, intends to stop scams, not cause delays to transfers. Um, I guess, you know, there's also a concern that these anti-scam transfer rules are likely to make small self-administered scheme processes a lot more drawn out. I mean, due to their nature, it's more likely than not that SASIs will have a flag raised against them. You know, they allow investment in commercial property, overseas investment, all that sort of stuff, which, you know, could be to the detriment of legitimate SASH transfers. And there's timing issues with this as well. You know, HMRC has previously come under fire for taking too long to, reg to register SAS schemes. You know, in 2018, advisors told us that this was taking more than three months. But in 2019, you know, this did drop from months to weeks. So they are picking it up. But with these rules coming in, you know, are are these processes going to take months and months? And if so, you know, this is something that advisors really are going to have to jump up, like jump onto and kind of manage the expectations of their clients. You know, a client can't just come to them and be like, right, I want to buy a commercial property. Like, let's set up a SaaS. Like, let's get this done. Like, it's probably not going to be a quick process. You know, you first got to register the SaaS with HMRC. And then if you're transferring into a SAS, you've got to go through all of these new anti-scam rules. Um, so I guess, you know, the next kind of year will give us a better idea of how these rules are operating in the real world and how they're playing it out. Um, but, yeah, we will see if there is a barrage of complaints to the Ombudsman about things taking too long.
And you mentioned um, uh, guidance a little earlier. Uh, pension providers will have to uh, uh, implement a stronger nudge to guidance to pension-wise from the 1st of June under uh, FCA rules. Is the industry on board with this? And uh, how do you think we can uh, see this take shape uh, this year? I mean, I feel like the industry has no choice but to get on board with it because they, it is coming, whether they like it or not. Um, but no, then I don't think they're too happy about what they're being asked to do because the rules mean that providers will need to kind of push all advised clients to take guidance, um, which many providers have told me feels a bit like overkill and will result in many confused advised clients wondering you know, why providers directing them to guidance rather than accepting the individual advice the advisor is given. Um, it kind of, it might also undermine advice. You know, people might think, well, if I have to get guidance anyway, but what's the point in me getting advice? You know, I thought getting advice was, you know, the top thing you could kind of do. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. Um, there's also been concerns that it comes at the wrong time in the process. So, you know, you go to your pen, your from that well, from June, you'll go to your pension provider and say, right, I want to access my pension. So you've already made this decision in your head that you want to go into your pension and get your funds. And then they turn around to you and go, OK, well, you need to take, you know, we have to push you towards guidance um, here. Why don't you go talk to pension wise about it? You know, it is going to ruffle clients like it's going to, you know, if you want your pension money, you want it there. And then you're going to think, why? you know why have I got away so yeah there, there's been things that it comes at the wrong time in the process so the nudge will be seen as a barrier rather than a benefit uh people are saying you know it should have come earlier so when people are kind of considering how you would go about accessing pensions like not when people have gone right this is when I'm going to access mm-hmm. um so yeah then we'll have to see what happens there as well I mean people can opt not to take guidance but you know there's concerns that this once again elongates the process and means that people are going to just face delays getting access to their money so yeah 2022 looks like the year of delays unfortunately yeah and um this uh, it's this year has been a bit of a, a a crazy year for the state pension with delays and new applicants getting paid while uh, old women found to have been shortchanged and then there was the uh, constant debate about whether the triple lock should remain or shouldn't remain uh what can we expect in uh, 2022 for this well yeah so obviously last year the debate over the triple lock kind of raged on as you know the end of furlough was kind of pushing earnings figures to crazy levels meaning that the government kind of had no choice but to suspend the triple lock and opt for an increase of 3.1% um which is you know the cpi inflation figure for september however we are going to have a few angry pensioners because, you know, in the following months, inflation has absolutely soared. Um, so, you know, they could, <laughs> they're going to think, you know, I could have, well, I could have had that raise, you know, but it is what it is, I guess, you know, we are with this figure and they have pledged that the suspension of the triple lock is well, the one element, the earnings element of the triple lock is only for one year. But, you know, there are mutterings going on in the industry and just among, you know, everyday people that, you know, the triple lock may be over. You know, are we going to see it make its comeback? What if, you know, the inflation and earning figures are still high this year? You know, are they going to still keep the triple lock how it is or are we going to stay with a double lock from now on? And, um, you know, we're going to have to wait and see for this. 
Um, but just before Christmas, the government launched a review, actually, of the state pension age to see whether the way it manages the costs is fair to taxpayers and pensioners. And um, we'll also consider whether it should bring forward the raise, uh, the rise in the age at which people become eligible for the state pension uh, to 2037, 39. And I mean, I know that seems a long way away, but, you know, these years do zoom by. So currently the pension, the state pension age is 66 and we already have two further increases set out in legislation, including a gradual rise to 67 for those born on or after April 1960 and then a rise to 68 between 2044 and 2046 for those born on or after April 1977. Um, I mean, the review needs to be published by May 2023. You know, that's set out in the rules. Um, so we may not say see it come out this year. I mean, we might be lucky, but I think that's something to look out for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to uh, last but by no means least, uh, Ruby, um, we've mentioned um, several of the areas where the um, the FCA has been active and might well be active uh, in the future. And um, one of those areas, I suppose, is platform transfer times and the uh, the ongoing push and pull between platforms, the FCA and fund managers. Uh, what do you see happening here, here in um, uh, this year? Sure. I mean, it's been, you know, an issue that's been going on for some time. And the, the main sort of crux of the issue is that, um, you know, platforms argue that without digitization on the fund manager side, uh, they simply can't migrate advisors, clients as, as fast as they'd like to. And so they're sort of arguing that that's a, a big reason why these platform transfer type times still aren't where platforms want them to be. Um, and interestingly, at the end of last year, the UK platform group sent a letter to the Investment Association sort of suggesting the FCA had asked platforms to identify fund managers and other parties who'd poor performance, you know, preventing the expected reduction in, in transfer times. The FCA later confirmed that that wasn't the case and that it hasn't yet shifted scrutiny from platforms to, to fund managers. But it's clear that there's such discontentment amongst platforms on the issue and a wish for the FCA to do something about it. Um, so much so that the organisations are actually stretching the truth in order to try and scare fund managers into digitising more of their funds. Um, And and this isn't an issue I I don't think that will go away in in 2022. You know, we saw complaints about platforms double in the past 24 months, according to FCA data, um, and they've been steadily on the rise since 2019. Um, And we we understand that the the stress this has on the advisor side as well with their clients. Um, We shared a story of a former Quilter client um, back in November who was left waiting for £5,000 worth of pension payments for at least two weeks um, after he was migrated from Quilter to Fidelity. Um, I mean, in this instance, you know, Quilter blamed the the fund groups, um, which said weren't set up for for digital registration. You know, they argued that cash transfer would have been better for the client because it would have only taken a month, um, whereas re-registration or an in-species transfer can take uh, up to six months because of uh, fund fund groups sort of lack of digitization. So, but you can see that neither option is ideal for the client. Either they miss out on a month in the market or potentially wait up to six months for funds to be transferred and become available. So it's a real stalemate and it's one that's that's existed for for some years now. Um, But I think with growing discontentment and growing pressure on the FCA, I think it definitely will start more attention uh, this year. Cool. And one of the um, areas that you've been looking at um, uh, last month was the um, potential for review by the Advertising Standards Authority into uh, lead generation adverts for financial services, and uh, that includes insurance. And uh, 
this could have a particular impact on on the insurance industry. What 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 do you think is likely to happen there in, in this year? Yeah, sure. It's it's pretty pretty significant. I mean, the ASA have never actually um, kind of come out with industry wide rulings for insurance lead generation firms um, and some advisors have raised concerns to me about the advertising tactics used by lead gen firms um, which insurers work with and the fact that they are attracting the sort of wrong type of customers um, I mean one example that um, came up so towards the end of last year was an ASA ruling on open media group um, it said it breached fair advertising standards because of its use of the word benefit it was saying that UK seniors could claim this benefit um, within a certain time frame when in actual fact it was trying to persuade visitors to purchase a funeral plan um, so the two really didn't add up and, and I did a little bit of digging around and found that there were, there were plenty of other ads like this that read things like oh people born between 1941 and 1971 get this benefit in November um, but you know that, that benefit doesn't exist what it's actually saying is you know um, click on this link and buy this policy and the po- the benefit is the fact that you've bought this policy and that's not a benefit um, saying that you will buy something and then have it um, you know it just doesn't make sense and so there's this kind of uh, trend of adverts sort of tricking customers into insurance plans which is obviously not good for the insurance industry because it's going to impact churn rate um, and, and simply from a moral standpoint it, it, it doesn't really seem ethical Um and I mean, advertising in the life insurance industry has raised eyebrows for some years. And, and earlier last year, we also called out um, adverts that advisors themselves dubbed as sort of 1950s style sexist ads. Um, and these ones came from Candida Life Insurance, the generation firm that, that advertises through um, its brand Polly for mums. And it basically claimed that women spend all their hard earned cash on clothes, underwear and makeup, inferring that they need to spend it instead on insuring their families. Um so there's a lot of different elements to this, um, but there's definitely long been a need for a cleanup in the insurance ad space. And I think this year we can expect some significant headway made. And another area that you've been covering uh, last month was the um, the number of uh, buy-to-let investors who were uh, switching to uh, cryptocurrencies uh, to uh, seek bigger gains. Do you think this is something that's likely to continue into uh, 2022? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, it's something that's kind of been uh, happening kind of gradually from, from my understanding. Um, and it kind of makes sense when you look at the at the numbers and, and when you talk to brokers. I mean, um, I was speaking to to one broker who was making the point that their growth in the buy-to-let sector, this, this is a London-based broker, it was 28% in 2020 and it was 28% again in 2021. So the growth in the buy-to-let sector is sort of starting to stagnate a little bit. Um, which speaks to this trend that people are looking elsewhere for um, investments other than property. Um, and it's a, it's a mixture, right? It's a mixture of buy-to-let investors that have already got portfolios. And then it's also people who were kind of considering whether to get into the buy-to-let sector or not. Um, and I spoke to one, um, one person who had family and friends who had um, enter the buy-to-let space and he did his own research he's a, a director of his own company and he did his own research he's having bought his first house looking to, to get a second to, to let um, and decided he just wouldn't do it because the not only were there regulatory, regulatory barriers um, there's also the barrier of actually getting a deposit um, for, for a buy-to-let um, property you know the amount um, that you have to to spend is is pretty significant. I mean, the broker I was talking to based in London said they had one client looking at a minimum £200,000 deposit for a three-bedroom flat. You had stamp duty plus 3%, 
um, and the fact that you know you can no longer offset interest payments against rental income um, means you are looking at sort of a, a quarter of a million pounds um, just to get onto the buy to let ladder at least in London um, and so this is what this this guy found is that he just simply couldn't get into it couldn't break into that market so he's now looking at, at crypto where gains are a, a lot higher you know the about a minimum of 30% can be made on crypto within just three to, to six months versus sort of five to 10% over a year on property. So when you look at the, the figures, it makes sense. And I think we'll definitely see more people going that way. Obviously, there's the thing of regulation. Um, you know, crypto gains are already subject to, to capital gains tax. Um, and so it will be a kind of question of how much more will it will it be taxed over time and, and whether people should take out their gains at some point. Um, to avoid that tax. Um, so I think that will be a conversation that happens throughout this year um, as more people uh, decide to turn to crypto. Mm, interesting. Well, hopefully the uh, next year will be uh, an interesting one, if a bit less eventful from a COVID point of view uh, than uh, the last couple of years. Uh, thank you very much to Amy, Ubi, Sally and Sonia. And uh, Happy New Year to all our listeners and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.